0: Welcome to the first episode of Broadway Radio's newest show, Tell Me More. I'm your host, Matt Tamanini. On today's episode, I will chat with the brilliant, talented, and always inspiring and life-affirming actress and now author, Alexandra Silber. Having starred in revivals of Fiddler on the Roof in both London's West End and on Broadway, she has now written a book which is officially out today that follows Tevias' second oldest daughter, Hodel, as she travels far from the home she loves in search of her imprisoned fiancé, Perchick. As always with her, I had a wonderful conversation with Al, and we will dive into that in just a few minutes. But first, I wanted to let you know what you can expect from this new show. Not only is Tell Me More a lyric lifted from Greece, but it is also the de facto mission statement for this entire show. Whether in interviews, conversations, or silly investigations, the focus will always be to learn more than we normally get in theater podcasts on Broadway Radio or elsewhere. For example, most of the time when theater artists are on podcasts, they are rightly discussing their current project, or perhaps the totality of their careers. While I'm sure that we will do some of that in each of our interviews, there are already so many incredibly talented people that I'm fortunate enough to call friends that do that. So, when I talk to artists on this show, we will be discussing other things like exciting side projects like we are with Al, as well as with our next guest, who is a musical theater actor who, along with his sitcom star BFF, has written a web-based comic book. We will also be discussing causes and charities that are important to artists and much, much more. In addition, if you listen to Today on Broadway, you know that James Marino and I often try to discuss some of the theater's big picture issues, from representation and colorblind casting to the Broadway real estate crunch to union contracts and more. Due to the nature of that show, those conversations are often short and, because of that, fairly superficial. But on Tell Me More, we will dive deeper with people who are far more involved with and insightful on these topics than either James or I will ever be. No offense, James. We will also try to get to the bottom of some questions that personally I find interesting, and hopefully you will too, like why are there so many musical theater actors on the CW superhero shows? And are musicals adapted from movies more or less successful, depending on how you define that word, than those adapted from books, straight plays, or real life? So you'll be hearing more about Tell Me More in the coming days and weeks, and I hope you join me on this journey. Now back to today's first episode. James and I first interviewed Alexandra Silber almost a year ago, and while I don't like to speak for other people, she has said this enough times to me, including in this conversation, that I feel comfortable in repeating that for both of us, it was not only one of the best interviews that we have ever been a part of, but one of the best conversations as well. However, if I'm being completely honest here, that likely had very little to do with James or me. That's because Al is one of those people who can take a seemingly straightforward standard question and internalize it to the point where she's able to produce a life-shakingly profound response. In this conversation, we discuss how the writing of her novel, which is separated into three sections, which she calls books, brought her to a better understanding of herself, Why the matchmaker scene in Fiddler's most recent Broadway revival was so different from those that came before it, and how the death of her father impacted the story in After Anna Tevka. In May, Al was joined by her talented friends Santino Fontana, Ryan Silverman, Jessica Fontana, Ellie Fishman, Fiddler lyricist Sheldon Harnick, and an incredible band for After Anna Tevka in concert. Throughout the interview, we'll be playing clips from the wonderful songs performed. For more information and videos of those songs, check out the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com. And at the end of the interview, Al also talks about a couple of readings and signings happening in the next few days. We will have that information in the show notes as well. As Al and I started our conversation, I, I just remarked that in addition to everything she's accomplished on stage, to receiving a Grammy nomination, that she is now, in fact, an actual official author.
1: I know it doesn't really feel real yet, but... I'm about to go sign, like, 850 copies of the book, (laughs) so, yeah, I better get used to it, so.
0: What was it like that first time when you got the actual book and everything?
1: So, it was a lot like the opening night of a Broadway show or a West End (laughs) show, in that all of the things that you had dreamed about and worked for, you know, for me, it was like doing a million productions of musicals in my living room. (laughs) And finally, you know, finally having that come to fruition and sharing it with everyone that means something to you, you know, that, that feeling of I, I did this, I, I did it. This dream that I had and worked for and bled for has come true. What was different and what was really fascinating was that the moment I had with my book was a moment that I had alone. It arrived in my mail And I, you know, I opened the envelope and it was a silent moment, a quiet moment. And in a way, it felt holier. It's interesting, like one of the many things that I was, that I've been thinking about is I love the theater because I love to tell stories and I love to get inside other people's minds and hearts and psychologies and I love learning about the sociology and the history and about relationships. It's, you know, it's a very full art form in it. I love that it gets to be shared at, with the public and that also the public shares their experience of bearing witness to the story. What's really different about reading and why I've always loved reading is that in a funny way, it's almost more intimate because the author of the book is speaking directly to a reader And interestingly, despite the fact that it's a very, very close relationship, they might never meet. And I I was thinking about, um, you know, when I was growing up, I was a voracious reader, and I thought, I have advanced and rich relationships with John Steinbeck and Fyodor (laughs) Dostoevsky and Bulgakov and Virginia Woolf and all of – E.M. Forrester – all of these authors who are no longer in the world, but I feel like I know them and that they have influenced and shaped my life, the way I view the world, the way I view myself and other people. And I think what's so fascinating is that that key difference is the difference between the theater, the beauty of the theater is that it happens in real time and it's ephemeral. And the beauty of writing is that it's forever. It's something that long after I'm gone, Someone will have that intimate moment with this book, and I think I, all of that hit me when I held it in my hands.
0: Was it a you know? You said it was a holy experience. Was it? Was it? Were there tears? Was it like what? What was that?
1: Yeah, I, I guess there's a part of me that wish I could say there were tears of hmm. of either emotion, but to reference a musical. Um, <laughs> You know, in um, Flora the Red Menace, that beautiful candor and ebb song, mm-hmm. A Quiet Thing, when it all comes true just the way you planned, you know, she talks about, Flora in that musical talks about, there's no fireworks, there's no trumpets, it's a quiet thing. And that's, that's what I felt. I felt, the, I felt a quiet thing. It, mm-hmm. was, it was this huge, you know, it, it simultaneously held the universe in the palm of my hand it was one of those feelings and it didn't make it any less profound it was just like i think i think the miracle of it was every accomplishment in the world is day by day line by line you know if you think about like a baby being born you know <laughs> the the baby is gestating just by the mother breathing and living and, and continuing on. A tree looks stagnant, but it is growing every day. And I just think I, I was sort of going over in my head that line by line, chapter by chapter, this book was born and has come to be. And, you know, it, it doesn't, it's creativity is work. It's not magic. And I just, you know, to, to hold it, it, it felt like a living thing.
0: Well you mentioned that that it's a it's a living thing and it's and it's grown maybe slowly and mm-hmm. that this is something that you'd you'd work towards but you also mentioned doing these musicals in your living room before doing things on stage on the yeah. converse side had you ever like I know you've been blogging for like you know 15 years or whatever it is now but yes. did you ever think of yourself as a as a writer was a novel ever part of the plan whether it was this one or something else
1: that's a great question. You know, I don't know that I've ever thought of it in that context, so I'm really happy to think about that and answer it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose yes and no. I think I always like, for example, whenever there was like a card that had to be written in my family or, you know, like when a class <laughs> writes a card to their teacher, I was always the person that was like, oh, she's good at writing cards. <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> I guess it was always I had a way with words. I knew that about myself in the same way that I think I knew I was a good singer and a good interpretive actor. You know, the yeah. a lot of the skills and the talents we have are, are apparent earlier in our in our lives, right? But I think to take on the title of I am a writer requires a sort of like spiritual shift in self-knowledge and and self-worth that a lot of people I don't know, don't don't necessarily always do that. They sort of accept the title and then run with it, but to really hold it, it's I, I never ever to put it to you this way, I never in my life thought that it would be the thing at the top of my tax return. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like this person is a writer, this person is a novelist. I wrote in the same way that for many years, you know, we've discussed before in our previous conversation. So I have a degree in, in acting in straight drama. Mm-hmm. And that my singing for a long time was very natural. And I really only started training properly later in my life. So I had a very similar experience owning my right to call myself a singer. Because in my head I went, well, a singer is somebody that sings at the Metropolitan Opera. (laughs) A singer is someone that has a degree in musical theater or vocal performance. And what I find really funny is I'm sitting here going, well, actually I'm really happy to not have a degree in creative writing from wherever university, because it's proven to me that, well, there's a book and it's right there. <laughs> you know, it's the thing. So some, you know, if, if a writer didn't write it, then who did, you know? Um, and I think that actually opened up a whole other conversation and, and, and concept to me in my brain of, you know, training isn't everything. It, it, that the magic of life is in the doing. And in the exact same way that I remember having a great conversation with my mom about singing many years ago, she was like, but I'm confused because I definitely saw you in the West End production of Carousel playing Julie Jordan. (laughs) So they're having you sing in public in one of the greatest English speaking theaters in the world in the front. So if you're not singing, I'm just confused. You know, it was and, you know, of course, I made. she made a very good point, but I don't think that. That's everything. I think it's about the ownership of the words. And I had a really great conversation with my uh, literary agent as well, where when I was really panicking about writing this novel and just writing in general, you know, I, for, like you said, for years I've been blogging, but when I first started my blog, it was a little irreverent and it was definitely like an outlet for me to put all my creative energy so that my quote unquote night job as an actor didn't have to fulfill all my creative needs. Hmm. It's actually interesting. It's kind of like uh, having a relationship and having a job. You know, sometimes when one is really suffering, you put all of your emotional eggs in the basket of the other. Does that make any sense?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Where you sort of
1: go, oh, well, if my relationship is suffering, I'm going to throw myself into my work or vice versa. I thought, well, I had a lot of creative needs, and I thought if I completely de- depend on my theatrical career to meet those creative needs, at a certain point it's not going to feel fulfilling, and I'm going to grow weary and I'm going to get upset. So I have to take charge of my own creative life, and if I can write little irreverent essays about mm-hmm. an ode to raspberry jam why raspberry jam is superior to all other forms of jam and, you know, comparing and contrasting murder she wrote to diagnosis murder, for example. (laughs) Um, That's perfect. Then, you know, at the end of every day, I had created a thing. And it was just a 350-word thing, but it was a thing that wasn't in the world before I created it. And I was saying to my literary agent, perhaps you don't understand, I'm not a writer, I'm an actor who writes about jam and murder, she wrote. And I I can't do this. I can't do this. And she was very, very patient with me and very calm. And she says, I understand, but I don't represent actors. I represent you, and I represent writers. And therefore, doing the logical math, that must mean you are a writer. Hmm. And that really changed my energy around it, going, someone has – just like they did in my career as a singing actor, someone has taken a leap to believe in my writing and therefore I should too. And, you know, that's, that's an, that's an honor. And I, I didn't want to throw that away and disrespect the energy of that leap. Just the way I, I, I wanted to live up to it at the beginning of my acting and singing career. So, I think that answers your question.
0: <laughs> no, that's no, it's beautiful. I mean, I really, I think the synergy between what your mom said to you and what your literary and I said that's really that's a really beautiful thing, and also kind of mirrors how you set up the book, which we'll get into uh, here in a little bit. But uh, real quick side note: grape jelly is the best, so we're, let's not get into that. Um, but
1: apples and oranges, Matt. I, jam and jelly are different things.
0: I know, whatever. But that's not that's neither here nor there. Okay, so okay. I think <laughs> I I think I don't want to get into I don't want to argue jam and jelly with you. We've got too many more important things to talk about. Okay, um, we
1: can do that over martinis.
0: Perfect, perfect. Okay, Great. so I think at this point, anybody who you know, we talked about it. I mean, I I think the, the first time we talked was like a year ago, and you kind of laid yeah. out what this book was and the. Legendary Sheldon Harnick mentioned it in that beautiful prologue in the book. So I don't think we need to get too in depth to you know how this all happened. But mm-hmm. let me just lay it out. This this book um, after Anna Tevka kind of started as a research exercise for yourself as you were playing Hodel in the West End. Is that more or less correct?
1: I mean, it, it, more or less. I will say that the that the project began about a year after I finished playing HODL. Okay. So it wasn't, it wasn't an initial research. It was about, it was that the character, you know, I was, quote unquote, done playing Hoddle, but Hoddle was not done with me, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, and no. I, I missed her, and I, I had never felt closer to a character that I had played. I had never felt that a character had been more Completely in spiritual alignment with who I was as a human being. And when I stopped playing her, I felt as if a very close friend just suddenly hmm. stopped calling me. I was in mourning. And also, you know, for, for the millions of people that know the musical, we leave this young woman on the sort of cusp of childhood and adulthood as she's about to make sort of the first gigantic decision of her lifetime, which is to join this man she's fallen in love with, Perchik, who's, you know, in trouble because of his socialist political activities at the turn of the 20th century. And he's been sent to a Siberian work camp. And as so many people know from the beautiful, far from the home I love scene in Fiddler, she goes to join him. And then after that, we never hear from her for the rest of that show. And never again. And I thought, I have to know what happens to this 18-year-old girl that gets on a train. You know, there were too many unanswered questions. And I remember thinking, well, if I can write blog post after blog post, essay by essay at a time, maybe I can explore what happens to HODL one chapter at a time. And it was a very personal exercise that I never, and I truly mean this, I never in a thousand years thought it would be shared with the world. It was incredibly personal and about me seeing through the narrative of a character that meant so much to me. And I now realize it was because I was also an 18-year-old girl who, I didn't get on a train to Siberia, but I got on a plane to London to Scotland.
0: Oh, yeah, Scotland, yeah, for school, yeah.
1: Yeah, at an equally tumultuous part of my life, just after my father had passed away. And I I only now see there is a parallel between an 18-year-old who gets on a train to Siberia and an 18-year-old who gets on a plane to Scotland, that in seeing Hoddle's story through and making sure that she was strong enough for the rest of her life, I was doing that exercise for myself.
0: That's great. Well, okay, let's, we're, we're we're at the point about talking about the book now. And I, Mm -hmm. I'm by no means a book reviewer and full disclosure, I'm a really slow reader. So I still have to finish the last of the three books. So don't spoil anything for me or anybody who hasn't read it. That's listening, but Al, it's, it's, it's beautiful, and it's heartbreaking, <laughs> and there are moments where like my heart is racing as I'm reading it, and then I've laughed out loud, and I've cried at things that I didn't expect to cry. So oh, thank you. congratulations, and thank you for that. But it's interesting that you talk about this as being such a personal thing for you, that there are so many parallels that you didn't notice between you and Hoddle when you're writing this. I'm reading it and seeing so many correlations between the – tumult that's going on in the book and things that are happening in real life so as I'm reading this book the phrase she persisted just kept echoing over and over in my head and like every turn of the page like that's what I'm thinking and I I just was moved by you know every dark twist and turn that happened you know trying to see it through the light of today I guess.
1: I I'm first of all thank you that means so much to me and you know, again, I wasn't necessarily writing the story to, you know, sure. win writing awards. I, I wrote it from a very authentic place that, you know, I wanted Huddle and Perchick's story to be shared with slow, fast readers, you know, <laughs> historians, Jews, non-Jews. You know, it's, stories are meant to be told, and, and the more inclusion, the better, I think so thank you. I completely agree. And I have to say, I completed writing the majority of this book mm-hmm. long before the particularly gruesome parallels that we have. And I, I agree. You know, I don't think that Elizabeth Warren is the first persistent woman in history. Um, She is an amazing, you know, there's a framed picture of her, in fact, in my kitchen. Oh, really? (laughs) And I, but, you know, I think that she's become, you know, that those words, of course, are now a battle cry for all persistent women before her and all of those to come after. And Hoddle is certainly one of them. And, you know, there's another, there's another phrase, I don't know if you've gotten to it, I don't think you've gotten to it yet, but where Perchick is sharing with one of his greatest friends and comrades about what is, what is happening in the world and in their case in Russia. But he says to his friend, you know, we're going to have to be very, very brave. And his friend says, I am not courageous like you. You know, I'm just a university student. And Perchik responds by saying, it would not be courage if you were not afraid. And I just believe that I got goosebumps. Okay. I like
0: just like I got goosebumps when you're just telling that story. That's awesome.
1: Our bodies both are broken. There's brands upon our skin. Though it's hard to keep a meal down, we won't kneel down and give in.
0: There's too much that's worth fighting for That's too long been delayed You will never find your courage If you never feel afraid (laughs) One man can make a difference That isn't just a dream The scratch of pen on paper scratch out a regime a breeze becomes a gust of wind that blows the locks of doors if whispers can turn to murmurs then murmurs can turn to
1: roars The waiting well, is the ring if you think about it it's true you know you take, take it completely out of political and, and you know adverse human situations and think if a person is afraid of heights it is a miraculous feat of their courage if they climb a mountain that's unbelievable it's a miraculous feat of courage if they use an escalator (laughs) but if a person isn't afraid of heights it's it's no big deal it's not an act of courage and everything along the way is an increasing levels of adversity is no different and you know, for these people in this time period, they were fighting huge, huge changes in Russia and in the world. This is one of the most tumultuous periods of European and world history. And we look back on it and marvel at the people. And sometimes cheer on their level of upset and rage and sometimes are horrified by it. But the truth is that upset is evidence of care and no great change in human history ever occurred without it. And it's interesting. Persistence is a wonderful word. And I think it's a very personal word. And I think that we've also had a lot of, uh, there's a lot of baggage around the word resist um, hmm. Some people find it to be an incredible banner, and some people find it to be difficult and at times offensive. But the most important thing to realize about resistance is to, at the very minimum, honor all of the people who have come before who have worked and bled and sometimes died for what that word has come to mean. And that, if anything, regardless of what side of the political spectrum you Sit on or fall, that having the courage of your convictions is universally admirable, and you know that it's it 's just very important important to fight for what you believe in the The beauty of Perchik and subsequently of, of Hol is his fight for equality, his fight for fairness and his fight for justice for mankind and you know, regardless of where communism eventually took Russia slash the Soviet Union and how flawed that experiment became, the essential message is very poignant today. That I, I believe you have gotten to the part where one of my favorite characters, Rabbi Syme, who mm-hmm. is a, a counselor to Perchik in his youth. And incidentally, I thought you might like to know this. Rabbi David Syme is the character in my book. Rabbi Daniel Syme is a rabbi who is from Bloomfield Hills Michigan and really changed my no. life was a very was a very very influential person around the time of my father's death and I wow. this was my way of honoring him but rabbi sim says to perchik that all men no matter how low how basic or how tormented deserve dignified brotherhood and respect mm-hmm. And that is a universal truth. And so, yes, I I do believe there are some very chilling parallels, not only in the ideals, but in the levels of torture and adversity that are expressed in in the book. It's not for the faint of heart, (laughs) as you know. (laughs) And
0: that's what, you know, you think of. Fiddler on the Roof is not, you know, a, a golden age musical comedy, but it's also not, you know, equivalent to 1984 that's on Broadway now. So when I got to, right. there's a part in the first book that was, you know, it was, it was dark already and it was, you know, terrifying. But then there's a point, which again, we won't spoil. I was like, Oh God. Oh, she, meaning you. this is happening. I like, Al, yeah. <laughs> Al, went there. you like, that's, that's real. And I was like, Oh, that changes everything that, I expect in the, the rest of this book, because that really does change everything. I mean, with this character.
1: Yeah, And I think, yes, I agree. And I think that it's, you know, it's important to recognize that it's, it's based on characters from Fiddler on the Roof, but it is definitely not Fiddler on the Roof. Um, We're not in Kansas anymore, meaning we're not in Aniteska anymore, (laughs) that this is definitely a piece of realistic. And that means very harrowing historical fiction. and, you know they leave the shtetl to uncertainty and what they're met with is trials that are the trials people would have met in the Russian katorga system and the prison system for these criminals and i think the beauty of it is no matter how dark hadel does not lose her her spirit her spiritual spine is never broken
0: and that's that's perfect because that's what i wanted to ask this question one of the mm-hmm. themes that comes up a, a lot is is hoddle talking about kind of the balance between devotion and faith and mm-hmm. having this faith that was innately born in her that she was able to kind of rely on even in those darkest days like the ones i just you know el- alluded to and and it right. did to me harken back to Fiddler because you know to me the devotion kind of rang of the you know the song tradition. This is what we do. Right. We're devoted to this tradition. But faith is something that whether it is a faith to your beliefs, like with Perchik and, and socialism, or you mm-hmm. know, is a more religious faith. Like that was so interesting and and and, and powerful to me to see that in Hoddle to go through all of the stuff you put her through to kind of. But that was still at the the heart of a lot of what she did. At least through Where I Am.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that distinction because I believe faith is a very personal thing. You know, traditions are shared and traditions obviously harken back to faith-based ideals. But it's, it's absolutely possible for someone to adhere to traditional rules and adhere to religious rituals and not ever betray that they don't technically believe. And it's also equally true that a person cannot adhere to traditions and religious rituals and have a very, very rich and real relationship with something beyond themselves, Hmm. um, which in Hadl's case, she would describe as God. And I think that one of the many things that she goes through, and you've definitely gotten to this part, where she sort of observes in the sisters that we come to know in Seidel and Chava that there's a difference between a person who obeys, a person who rails against, and a person who truly believes. And that Huddle finds herself as a true believer, feeling that she has a relationship and a dialogue with God that feels very personal to her. And also that as she goes through periods of doubt, her faith strengthens. And I love the role of doubt, not only in a religious context or a faith-based context, but just in life. Um, there's a very famous story about, kind of veering away from Judaism for a moment, but about Muhammad when he was, when, when Muhammad was chosen and, and told by, by the archangel that he was going to lead people to Allah, he at first didn't believe them, didn't believe that he'd had this vision, didn't believe that, that this was real. And he walked away from this vision and, and went into solitude and thought about it, and through the period of his doubt came to decide that he believed. And that it would be one thing if you just accepted that this was your calling, but, this, but doubt forces you to really look at what's being presented to you and make a personal and very real decision to believe. And um, I think that's true of anything from believing in yourself to having faith in another person. Deciding to trust other people is a huge act of faith. But nothing is more personal than your relationship to God, the universe, whatever it may be—you know, nature, whatever it may be for you. Right. But when it's chosen, it's always stronger.
0: Yeah, I like that. Well, and I, not to get you know too super personal, but obviously this is—you mentioned your, your the connection to your rabbi growing up, and then you've talked mm-hmm. about how important. Hoddle's faith is as it grows through this without getting into. I don't want to ask two personal questions
1: here, but I mean, I feel like you and I have burst through that wall before. Yeah, so don't I, know, worry.
0: I know. I know. Well, but I, yeah. I guess my question is not about the particulars, I guess. My question is more about yeah. as you go, as you've gone through your life, has your relationship with whatever it is that you believe, has that kind of grown like Hoddle's has through all of you've talked about, you know, your, your father passing away when you were 18 and, mm-hmm. you know, you living in Europe and coming back and, you know, the, the ups and downs of life, you know, in the arts, have you, have you felt yourself grow in faith and whatever faith that is like she does?
1: Yeah, I do. You know, interestingly, I think I worked a lot of it out through the writing of this book. I mean, that mm-hmm. Hoddle's, everything that I speak to as Hoddle's relationship with faith in God. Feels very, very much identical to my own. The only yeah. difference being our, the, you know, the literal background we have. Yeah. Um, meaning, you know, I didn't come from a very, cons- very conservative, shtetl community. You know, I came from a, a relatively secular uh, experience. My, my mom's family was Catholic. You know, and you know, so it it was an incredibly reform situation. But I do feel, interestingly, that my my relationship with faith has been chosen in my adulthood, and differs greatly from people in my family, you know, feels it's a very big part of my adult life. And I think interestingly, Fizzling on the Roof has everything to do with it, Um, Mm. as well as, you know, part of dealing with meaning, you know, when people that you love and are close to you die early in your life, you're forced to, you know, whenever that happens to one, you're forced to confront a lot of, bigger themes and, you know, every, everyone must grieve. Um, you can, you know, pretend you're putting it off as long as you want, um, but everyone must mm-hmm. grieve. Everyone will share the experience of loss and grief in our lifetime. People die. Um, people's hearts are broken. And for me, it wasn't that I utilized faith in God as a source of comfort or of healing but as an illumination of meaning about what life feels like on Earth, whether we're loved ones that are, you know, left behind in death or just the meaning of living life as a life as a good and honest person. One of the things I also love about Judaism in particular is it, it really does celebrate life here on Earth, and it's so connected to the arts, to literature, you know, has a very rich cultural history, almost connected to, but almost separate from the the faith part. And, well, and that's um, something.
0: Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: Oh no, no. But basically, um, Hoddle's, Hoddle's journey is my own with that particular yeah. subject. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, and that it, I mean, you wrote the book, so obviously it's something. But I mean, the rabbi even talks about that, you know, in in one of the lessons about Exodus, it talks about God commanded uh, the Israelites to go and live, you know, it is very much wanting to celebrate the fact that we are on earth, you know, so I I think that rings perfectly Oh, without question.
1: And I think something that I've always found really interesting, I love the story of Exodus in general, because it's, you know, even going back to to politics, it's a story about oppressed people everywhere. Mm And yes, just to that point, you know, if you think about ancient Egyptian culture, it is a culture that is completely focused on death and the afterlife and what that means. Yeah. And um, if you think about it, you know, it's, it's a, you know, the people that are choosing life and, and celebrating life here on earth and that that whole exodus is leaving a culture of death into a culture of life. And there's a symbol in that that I, I really love. Yeah.
0: I've got so many other questions. I w- w- you know, Go for we it. tend to. I know we tend to talk for a long time when we do this. But back to the book earlier, I mentioned that they're they're kind of like parallel stories in each of the, the books in the novel, mm-hmm. and especially I think for theater fans, the one in the first book a lot you know harkens back to things that happened in the time frame of Fiddler on the Roof and some things yes. that are familiar in some things that aren't. I have to say, just as an aside, the bread-making story was really moving to me for some reason. I don't know why. Um, but it's funny to me because as I'm as I'm reading and I'm envisioning the world of, of After Anna Tevka, in the stories that are centered on Hoddle uh-huh. I'm obviously, I'm picturing you. Because, you know, I know you played her and you're the writer and and I've seen you in, various, in these costumes. But then I instinctively when Zidle's in this at the center of the stories, yeah. I see I see you as Zidol and I see Samantha Macelle as Hoddle. So I don't know what that means. Uh-huh. Um, maybe too much of the dressing room 51 videos or whatever. But <laughs> I guess as I'm that made me think though, you know, you wrote this book, you know, as you said for the most part, or wrote it in the, you know, the whole process after you'd finished playing, you know, Hoddle. So but mm-hmm. did did your Zidle from London play a part oh, in how yeah. you picture her and then having oh my gosh having written yes. go ahead
1: yes oh no not at all i love this question you know it's really interesting so i don't have sisters so a lot of a lot of that aspect of the writing was something that i had to I, first of all i did a lot of research on it i asked a lot of my friends and and then of course a lot of it was based on my relationships with the other actresses that played the other sisters um I will say, as a starting point, that Hoddle, Seidel, Golda, Perchik, and all of the new Siberian characters, there is Alexandra Silber in, in all of them, that I'm, I'm sure. a part of all of, all of them. And um, I think what's really interesting, though, specifically between Hoddle and Seidel, is when I was playing Huddle, I was so – I mean, and this is an actor's job, is to go, all right – my job is Fiddler on the Roof, but my actual job is to portray and fill with life Huddle's narrative inside Fiddler on the Roof tonight. And so, of course, you have to have a myopic focus on her narrative and her wants and her needs and then vehemently fight for them. That's an actor's job. And when I was doing that, when I first started playing Huddle, I was 23 years old. And I was, as I mentioned, I had within a four-year spectrum had lost my father. And so a lot of, and also my, my boyfriend slash life partner at the time was by complete coincidence playing Perchick. We had gotten together about a year and a oh. half before that began. So there was a lot of parallels happening in, <laughs> when I started playing that show. And I absolutely did not understand the plight and the crisis behind Model Seidel's reality. I kind of viewed not at all the actors because the actors were geniuses and very remain very good friends. Um, Francis Thorburn, who played Seidel with me in Sheffield and in London, is one of my closest friends to this day. But I think I viewed Seidel as a little bit chilly and separate from the rest of the girls, and I, of course, viewed Model as sort of drippy and a total <laughs> schlamiel. I didn't understand why why Seidel had any interest in him and you know, just was sort of removed from it and was off in my own existential crisis of what will I, you know, all all of the things that, at you know, the beginning of the play huddle thinks about. And what's fascinating to me is that when I then, eight years later, started playing title, to get inside her story and go, oh, wow, this is a a young woman who, and I think I say this in the book, I know I say this in the book, if Hadl has Hava and Sprinze has Bielka, Seidel has no one. Seidel is alone in her life. And yes, she is definitely the apple of her mother's eye. And I have definitely created, and, and it is, you know, sort of my notion that Seidel is an extremely fastidious and gifted homemaker, you know, that she just has the gifts of all of the things that any Jewish woman and wife would ever dream to possess. But if the other two girls have a person in their family, Seidel's person is Mottal. As is quoted in the musical, they've been friends since they were babies together. They talk, they play. And I never respected or understood until it became my charge to fill Seidel with life that She has known, grown up alongside, and in so much as she understands the concept of love, has loved this man since birth. And therefore, the thought of having him ripped from her side by the sanctity of what's expected of her is a horror beyond articulation. And I, as Hadal, had no understanding or respect for that pain. And when I really started to explore it, it's, it's one of the many reasons why our Broadway matchmaker took on such a different tone. I just found it crushing. It's why our matchmaker began with our Seidel bursting into tears that should Model and Seidel not live as man and wife, they would not really be living at all. And what was so fascinating to me, I think to loop back and finally answer your question is this. <laughs> just like real life family members are able to go, oh, you know, I'm sure you've had the same experience where you go, oh, now that I'm an adult, I have a lot of things to thank and tell my parents <laughs> about what they did for me or that I finally understand something in a different way now that I'm there. Or I never told my sibling this. You know, you, that things dawn on you as you age and get perspective. And I did not have that with real family members. I had that through Huddle and Seidel. So I was able to sort of, if you will, recognize and apologize and validate Seidel through my Huddle perspective when I played Seidel. And what was wonderful is um, through a series of letters that you have not gotten to yet because they're all in the third part of the book, uh-huh. but I was able to write to Huddle and respect all of the things that I had been so frustrated by in my Alexandra's younger self. And so that relationship was not really between sort of three different actresses, but was for me most profoundly between my older and younger self. My, you know, it, it became a, like when people write letters to my 16 year old self um, (laughs) letters to my future self, it, that's what it felt like. It was, like I said, it was extremely personal and, and yet further to that point, did I, did I, steal and take little tiny details from all these people. Of course, there's a very specific part in the first part of the book where Melanie Moore and I, Melanie Moore who played Java in mm-hmm. on Broadway, Melanie and I had a, a very personal little touch where we have these little button noses <laughs> and we used to do this thing where we would Be boop touched. each other's nose. Oh, yeah, we'd sense. go we'd go boop and um and just, you know, press each other's button noses and it was this little thing that was just ours. And it was so emotional and so special and so, you know, it was something that we did at the beginning of the show and then also when Seidel and Chava say goodbye in the very final scene, so intimate. And I I had to add that to the book. Um, So that is absolutely an homage to Melanie and my relationship. My vision of Golda is very, very, very much Beverly Klein, who played it with me, who played Golda in London. And then, of course, a lot of people from my personal life, my my narrative of Perchick, I'm not at all embarrassed or shy to say, is me rumbling with understanding my father. And, mm. you know, my father to me was a great hero and a great champion of, of the people and I think a very deeply understood man by his immediate family. In in particular, uh older senior member of my immediate family who I have completely put into Gershom who is a character I've created that is his uncle and for Fiddler on the Roof fans I hope that you'll appreciate this little tidbit the entire project began by me asking myself the question in act 2 scene 1 of Fiddler on the Roof Tevye asks Hodel and Perchik what am I going to tell your mother what am I going to tell her about allowing the two of you to get married and Perchick responds with, Why don't you tell her I have a rich uncle? <laughs> a very rich uncle. And I thought, What if that were true? What if that weren't a joke? Wow. <laughs> and so I created this character that to me was, was my my father really working out a lot of his past. And I think it was a, a way for me to deal with some business on his behalf, even though he's gone.
0: That's really interesting because one of the one thing that I noticed there's a lot of the stories with all the sisters and and with Goldie and but we don't see much of Tevia throughout the book. Mm-hmm. And I and I wondered, obviously, the the original stories that Fiddler on the Roof is based off is Tevia and his daughters. It is a very female centric story, even though the musical is pretty much tevia focused. So I understand mm-hmm. kind of. Why he's not in this part, but obviously it was a conscious decision. But was there a thought behind of making him a more referenced than an actual flesh and blood character?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, on a very, very basic level, there were two thoughts about consciously not including him in the foreground. One of which was Al going, I think Tevye's had his say in terms of Fair. he got to, lo- you know, that Shalom Aleichem... Bach, Harnik, and Stein have really you know, given Tevya so much life, pardon the pun, um, yes, I am. and that, you know, that Tevya has guided millions and millions of people into this world, but the story, while it is all of our story, is Tevye's, that tonight, that story and all of the books that Shalom Lechem wrote are experiencing the world through Tevya's eyes. And not only did I, you know, did I feel that Tevye had had his his words, but I also, you know, it was a little bit of who do I think I am. I wasn't about to um, (laughs) tackle seeing the word through Tevye's eyes again. And more to the point, my relationship with Huddle was the one that felt so personal. And I felt that we, you know, she persisted. I felt that it was time to see this universe and this world through a woman's eyes. And... Finally, I think something that's deeply personal is I experienced my life at 18 with an absent father, with a father who I only experienced in memory and experienced, you know, like I just described, recognizing his contributions and his lessons along the way as I grew, you know. The numbers of times as an adult, I've wanted to pick up the phone and go, dad, I finally understand X. Even if it's like, I finally understand why you loved this movie, or I finally understand what you meant when you gave me this book or wh- whatever it may be. So that also paralleled my own experience of becoming an adult. Yeah. So that's, that's why Tevia is absent. It's not because he isn't significant. It's for all the reasons I just mentioned.
0: Yeah. When, and, and I, I wondered if there was a, a relationship between that and your father being absent for a lot of your adult life. So that's interesting to hear that that, that was at least part of it. That does oh, lead course. me in yeah. that does lead me into one question because After Anatevka is not the only book that you are have released or are going to be releasing. You have another one yeah. that is scheduled to be released in twenty eighteen, and that is White Hot Grief Parade, which is a memoir about losing your father at kind of the doorstep of adulthood.
1: Yes, exactly. It is, it, White hot Grief Parade was, uh, interestingly, it was a response to an experience I had around the 10-year anniversary of my father dying, which, interestingly, was hmm. only a couple weeks after my Broadway debut completed itself. Oh. So I had just finished playing Sophie De Palma in Masterclass in 2011 and I, you know, it's so interesting, and I, I welcome anyone else to, to say me too about this. Interestingly, when, when anniversaries come up, it's my experience that sometimes anniversaries, birthdays, anniversaries of good or difficult things, sometimes they come and go, and you aren't affected by them at all. Like, for example, the, the last Father's Day that passed, was relatively drama-free for me in terms of feelings, positive or negative. But I have had very difficult Father's Days in my lifetime since my father has died. And for whatever reason, and I'm sure it was the significance of the 10 years, the 10-year anniversary felt really big to me. And I think it was probably because also of all of the things that had sort of accumulated. One, I had you know, even though I had an incredible career and so many wonderful opportunities I was blessed with in London, there's no American theater geek that doesn't dream of a Broadway show. And there I was at 28 and I thought, I, I really did do it. And, you know, if if only I could say now to 18-year-old Al, not really at all different from what I was just describing about this communication between Hodel and Seidel, older and younger Al, if I could say to her, One day, you're going to realize that not only is it all okay, but it's going to be glorious because of this adversity, that you are going to take this experience and use it as a catapult of meaning, that you are going to be presented with this choice to curl up and die yourself or in the face of, of, of death and in the face of hardship to really, really live on purpose, and you chose the latter, and you did it, and if you told 18-year-old me that, I don't know how I would have taken it, but regardless, it happened, and so I was having this this moment, and I ended up writing a, a blog post that was, I think, for the first time in my blog's history, I got extremely personal in the sense that, There had all there, you know, it's not that my blog wasn't open. It wasn't that I wasn't warm. The tone of it wasn't, you know, welcoming, but it was definitely, you know, I, I didn't open myself up to extraordinary vulnerability that I would really only share with my inner circle of people until I wrote this post, which is called 10 years. And I, I basically, it was the first time that I said to people, you know, has anyone else out there ever had it hard? and thought they weren't going to make it, and then made it. You know, here are the things that I've learned thus far. And the, the re- first of all, this post poured out of me. And the response to it was staggering. It was like an earthquake mm-hmm. of this desire for people to connect at that level. And that it was interesting how people responded not just in terms of grief but in terms of all hardship and what was really fascinating to me was at the time and it's really interesting that you say you're at this point in the in reading after anatevka at the time i had completed the first two books of after anatevka but i had extraordinary writer's block about book three i knew what i what i was going to do with it but i couldn't sit down and physically write it i i just I, i couldn't do it i couldn't do it and when I wrote that post, it just became very clear that I had to write What White Hot Grief Parade before I could finish after Anatevka. Oh, and really? it 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 exploded out of me in, in weeks. I mean it the it was it just poured out and poured out and poured out and poured out and it, it was completed very, very quickly. It it's very raw. It's very interesting, it's very blackly comic. It's very funny. <laughs> um and once I completed it. Book three of After Anatevka almost wrote itself. Oh, wow. And so hopefully, you know, all being well, we'll see. But hopefully, White Hot Grief Parade is slated to come out Father's Day weekend of 2018. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay.
0: Well, and that's that's interesting because I think After Anatevka, this episode is going to come out on the day that After Anatevka is officially released, which is July 4th, which is the day after your birthday, right?
1: It is the day after my birthday. Happy birthday to me.
0: Yes. Probably the best birthday present I've ever had. (laughs) And you gave it to yourself. So there you go. Yeah, that's exactly.
1: It's it's you know I've like just you know, it's one of the things I just want to say to like anyone listening and you know, to you, Matt, too, like dear hardworking dreamers everywhere. Just keep going. And no matter how downtrodden, how difficult life seems it's really just one sentence one page one day at a time
0: i think that's a perfect way to end it so al thank yeah. you so much i'm so happy for for you with this this is uh, this you. is incredible and i think this is just uh the beginning of great things and and more opportunities that i'm so excited to be able to sit back and watch you you go through because i, I that. think that this is really really uh, special and and i couldn't be happier for you
1: well I'm really grateful to you, too. I, you know, I've said this, like, your, our interview last year, our talk last year was one of the greatest talks of my life. Me, too. Me, too. <laughs> and, me too. Um, so it's, you know, I, I feel so honored to keep tracking it all with you. So thank you. Oh, I appreciate
0: you. it. Anything else signing wise that we can let people know about?
1: Yeah. I mean, the, some, I have a couple immediate events that are super exciting the fir- and around next week. The first is I'm going to be doing uh, the reading room in Bryant Park noon oh, wow. on July 5th. Um, and it's at the 42nd street and right behind the library. Um, and if it rains, we're going to move to a different location, so check check your internet. Um, but it's going to be a really, really fun um, sort of first launch event, July 5th at noon awesome. in Bryant Park. And then um, July 7th, I'm at the Astoria Bookshop at 7 p.m., and I'm going to be joined by fellow huddle, Samantha Masell. So we're going to have a little uh, dressing perfect. room 51 reunion and having a really nice chat and reading at Astoria Bookshop on the 7th. So. Those are the first two events, and then everything else you can um, you can check out on my website, or I also have com. so nice. any information can come from there.
0: Thank you for listening to the first episode of Tell Me More. My name is Matt Tamanuni. You can find me on Twitter at B-W-W-M-A-T-T, and you can reach out to Broadway Radio on both Facebook and Twitter. At Broadway Radio. Today's guest, Alexandra Silver, can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Al Silbs. And we will have addresses for her website, blog, and the book's website and more in the show notes at broadwayradio.com. Tell Me More is produced by me and the man without whom none of Broadway Radio is possible, James Marino. Special thanks to Robbie Rizell, Iris Blassie, and Penguin Books. Thanks again for listening. And remember, when you walk through a storm, hold your head up high. Always get a second scoop. And when you get the chance, ask people to tell you more.